Hi, Marbel here and welcome back to the Director's Notes podcast. Even though we deeply love the work of every filmmaker we feature here on Director's Notes, it's a rare honour to get to talk to someone responsible for shaping and expanding our collective outlook as to the creative possibilities of the narrative and cinematic form. Multi-award winning director Chris Shepard firmly fits in that category, first transfixing us with the eye-watering comedy of Big Train's 43rd World Stare Out Championships finals, and then terrifying us with the senseless violence of 2003's groundbreaking combined animation live-action short Dad's Dead. During my time at last month's Encounters Festival, I had the pleasure of sitting down with Chris to reflect on his celebrated career a return to violence in Dad's Dead sequel, Jono's Dead, his massively collaborative project, Yours Faithfully, Edna Wellthorpe Misses, and even hope for a new World Stare Out Championships film. So this is a lifelong pleasure to be joined on the podcast with um, filmmaker Chris Shepard. Welcome to Director's Notes. <laughs> nice to see you, yeah, hello. <laughs> We've um, featured you before on the site a couple of years back um, where Rob interviewed you um, for um, The Ringer. But as I've never got to sit down with you and kind of dig into your roots, I'm going to kick things off with the traditional first question, which is, what is it that brought you to filmmaking, you know, initially in the first place? As a kid, I always wanted to express myself. And uh, in Liverpool, people either played football or played in bands. And, uh, you know, because the music tradition's big in Liverpool. I hated football because I grew up on Anfield Road in Liverpool, so there's violence outside. I didn't do that. I tried to play in a band, and then I was a bit late to the party. You know, it was just after Echo and the Bunny Men, and, and, and Cream was about to start, so it was getting more dancey, uh, raves and stuff like that. But then I still wanted to express myself, and then I realised I wanted to tell stories, because I always used to do cartoon strips and, and write stories. You know, I've got a passion for telling stories, really. I wanted to make a film with actors, really, about real life. I didn't really know any actors, so the first thing I did was I made characters out of plasticine, you know, and, uh, and animated them. And all my friends thought I'd gone absolutely nuts, you know what I mean, doing this stuff. But I, that was the starting point for me, really. Because you know, I never used to go out a lot when I was a teenager, because it was so violent where I grew up, you know, with the football and all that. But I used to watch a lot of TV, so I used to watch a lot of things like Dennis Potter, you know, or Lindsay Anderson, Play for Today's. And so I was really influenced by that. Like my favourite films are like Midnight Cowboy or One Flow of the Cuckoo's Nest, uh, Billy Liar, or you know these films that mix the drama and comedy. And that's what I really was really inspired by. And I think what I've done with the films is I started off by you know, I did animation, but in a way I was always drawn to trying to tell a real life story but because I did animation as well I could make it fantastic yeah you know I could have like a, a nostalgic a memory about memory or nostalgia I could put that into the films visually the mixing animation and live action yeah because you never despite those um, early roots of wanting to work with actors it's not that you know once you kind of made it to a certain point that you've gotten rid of your your, your animation there's always been this kind of mixed media yeah, approach. Yeah, yeah. When you sit down with a story, such as um, today, we're focusing on um, John O's Dead, which is playing yeah. here at Encounters, how do you decide which parts are going to be you know, the animated parts and which parts are going to be solely live action? You know, how does that kind of meld come together? Well, it's sort of all the films are quite different and I made them all different ways. But with John O's Dead and Dad's Dead, well, I did Dad's Dead in 2003. With a new one, I wanted to take the same approach. I did it more like a painting, so I sort of did 
six shoots over a year. Did a shoot, then edited, then did animation, and did a shoot, and, did a, and then edited, did animation. I did like a process for those films, so I built them up like paintings. So the decision about what is real and what's not, I mean, my dad's dead and Jono's dead in a sense. I write the story first as a script, and then as I work through it, it evolves in a way. I think about, I suppose I think about when it does it need to be real. For example, in the toilet in Jono's dead, is the toilet scene. I did a version of it where it's intercut with animation, so that you had animation intercut with the guy being beaten up in the toilet. And of course, in the end, I stripped it all out because I thought, in that part of the story, because it's violence, it's because of the bit where you confront somebody in that way, I wanted it to have impact. So I realised that I couldn't put any animation in there because I wanted the fight. Yeah. I wanted the realism. So I think with Dad's dead, Jono's dead. It's that thing where I'm playing around with the idea of like when, when things uh, you know, are real for impact, you know, the, the, the bits where you want to hit the audience. Yeah. Because the animation takes you out of the real world. Kind of like there's a removed. Yeah, because it's about imagination or fantasy or... So, you know, it's, it's knowing when to do it, when to... It's like um, Quentin Tarantino talks about how, you know, it's different when you see violence in colour and black and white, how it enhances the horror of it when it's in colour. But with animation, you know, you could show a scene of somebody getting their head chopped off in animation and people would laugh their heads off. And then you show it in live action and people will be horrified. So once again, it's about like weighing up what's the emotion you want for the scene. I think that's my main catalyst, that's my main driving force with that, really. Yeah. Ian Hart um, yeah, brilliantly narrates both films and um, plays the central character. At what point do you get him in to record the voice? Of the, you know, you're saying about doing this layering up and then changing the structure. No, well, with the, the John O's dead and Dad's dead. I did the voice first, so it's a bit like a radio play. And I think in a way that's always like the backbone for those films. Because I know that I can push the picture, you know, almost anywhere. But if I've got that voice, I've got that that is the element that will carry you through the narrative. Because it's so hard and straight, it's like a straight line in it. But you can go off that, but once you've got the voice, those films were very much about that really. I was always a bit terrified of the first part of Dad's Dead. I did it and I suppose I wanted to be funny. I want to be liked as a person. <laughs> I did that film and it was so horrible. I did the voiceover with Ian. I sent him the script, he went, oh, I've got to do it, I've got to do it. He does it and then I was terrified of it. I had a voice, I didn't have any money with Dad's Dead. This is back in 2003. And I sort of, um, I stuck it in the cupboard and didn't look at it because I was a bit terrified of it in a way, the, the voice. Because it was dark and I thought, oh God. But then it's the same with the new one. I wrote the script, I sent it to Ian. And Ian went, oh my God, oh my God, it's brilliant, it's brilliant. Fucking come, come to ours, come to ours, come to ours, come to... I go to his house and I sit there and he's going, oh, you know, I'm all right. And he said, oh, I've done me back in, I've done this, oh, do you want a cup of tea? And we're talking like that. I said, should we do it, should we do it? And I had a little Zoom recorder. And then he just locks into it and goes, have you ever wondered what 12 years feels like? Just goes into the character and it gives me a shiver down my spine. Because I think Ian can do that. He's such a, an amazing actor, Ian Hart. So we did a rough voiceover for that, and then I used that to get the money, but John was dead. But then we re-recorded at the end, because we thought we could push it a bit further, which we did. So we re-recorded the voice halfway through the film for that one. But, you know, once again, the voice was the core element, really. Yeah. I mean, Ian, Ian Hart is amazing. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. And like you said, that thing of, you know, getting shivers when you hear delivery was there in the first one and even more so yeah 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 I've worked with a lot of people who do voiceovers doing animation but with Ian it's different he's in the booth 
but we're saying do it like this do it like that do it as an Irish guy do it as that do it. and he goes no 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 shut up shut up be quiet be quiet be quiet and he was in the booth just going to himself like shaking his head and, and, and he was beating himself up and he went run it now run it now and then he did the bit about the fire and his voice the tremor in his voice he was so you know he, he put himself in the, in the space do you know what I mean and that's how he works he's totally there he's not like doing a voiceover he, he puts himself in the in the space you know where he imagines he's in the flat yeah, kind of almost like method yeah 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 and I, I've not met many people who do voice records like that he's amazing yeah, yeah. <laughs> no definitely did you always know, or I suppose how early did you know, that you wanted to revisit the world of Dad's Dead? Yeah, with Dad's Dead, it was really mega popular. I did it. But I did it as a film that I thought that everybody wanted to hate, really. I just thought I wanted to do a film that's like two fingers to the world. And then I just thought, I don't care whether people like it or not. I did it. And then, of course, then it was a massive success. I won loads of awards and did loads of things. So anyway, it makes me like a massive failure, in a way, because I sort of won <laughs> I won these awards, and that was like probably not the thing I was, I was probably after, but, but it was great. And loads of people want me to do stuff with Dad's Dead. I remember Muse asked me if I'd do a pop promo with them, and they put the scary faces on dancing girls, and I went, no. And they sort of went off and did it anyway. Maybe I should have done it. But anyway, but at the time I said no. So I was always protective of that style of it. And then I did a film, uh, loads of uh, feature for Film 4, which never happened which was sort of like Dad's Dead World. It's called Up in Heaven, and it was about a, uh, somebody who had postnatal depression. But that sort of got went into the, the land of development. film development, yeah. and it just, I was just stuck with that. So then I said to a tour de Minmi, who I did the film with, uh, I did Silence is Golden, John Was Dead, and The Ringer. And I said, oh, you know, they wanted me to do a sequel to Dad's Dead. And then I wrote The Ringer, but then it wasn't really a sequel because it was about my dad. Yeah. So when I finished that, I, I said to, to Nico and they told him with me, I said, well, I thought of an idea. But the thing was, it took me 10 years. I almost had to live my life, the equivalent time of the character, to sort of realise what might happen. You know what I mean? In a way, it, it took the 13 years, which the film is set and made after, made after the original. It, it took me all that time to think of a, a narrative, a, I went, yeah, it just came to me. And so when the Ian phoned me up, he says, come to ours, come to ours. But record it now, record it now. I remember he did it, it was brilliant. I come out and go, oh God, I've got to make this now. And I thought, it's so dark and horrible. And <laughs> I'm not really a dark and horrible person. <laughs> no, but, uh, and then I thought, I've got to do it. But, but you know, I'm really glad it is, because everything's becoming so homogenized. It's quite good just to go off somewhere else into a weird zone and, and do something a bit dark, you know. Also, it's, it's really good to see the change in the character because in Dad's Dead, he's very much a, a victim. And then you kind of see what prison has done to him or that time of stewing away, of you know, having to serve time for something that he didn't, didn't do. And then he's become John Hay. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? And I think the thing is, is he's like an unreliable narrator. I was always really inspired by Hubert Selby Jr. Yeah, you know, he wrote um, Last Exit to Brooklyn. He wrote Requiem for Dream, yeah. and he wrote a book called the, the Room, which is an amazing book because it's all set in a prison by this guy who's in a prison cell, and you think he's innocent. He doesn't leave the cell throughout the entire novel, but his imagination takes him places. And at first, you see, think he's innocent, but then you realise as time goes on, he talks about you know what he'll do to the police and, and what he'll do to the victim. The, the people involved 
you start to think you can't trust him anymore. And I think in a sense, it's like with John O'Dead, it's a similar thing where, whereby you start listening to it, you think he's all right, but by the end you think, can we really trust what he's saying? Yeah. I mean, people felt that about the original. Some people said to me about the original, how reliable was he? But I think he, the, the original Dad's Dead is a bit like a love affair. He's sort of in love with his friend in a way, but then it's sort of all, his friend's not very nice, Jono. And then in the end, it all gets to be a mess. And then it's about obsession, really, isn't it? I always think with Jono's dead, it's a bit like when you see people in the streets who want to fight other people and you don't really know why yeah. they want to fight. I think the film's sort of, you know, that, really. It's like getting inside some of these heads, you see some crazy guy saying, come on, take me on, take me on. I like to think it was like trying to get inside somebody's head like that, really. You know? yeah. Throughout your career, you've um, collaborated with yeah, many, many, many different um, you know, artists, filmmakers, yes. and, and so on. Is there a common ways to how these collaborations come about? Is it, you know, like an inspiration of work or being approached? I suppose maybe a more sensible question would be to ask, what do you look for in your fellow collaborators? Oh, God. Um, I say all the films are very different, aren't they, really? Yeah. Like, I work with David Shrigley and... Uh, I remember that I bought one of his books and I just loved it because it reminded me of the type of drawings I would have, I would have drawn on the toilet wall when I was a teenager and it reminded me of those outrageous drawings somehow and uh, so I approached him and then sometimes I'll see people like Dave and I think oh you know there's a kinship and then uh, I'll keep it on the back burner or keep thinking about it you know like with Dave it took seven years I did the film called Who I Am and What I Want and it took like seven years before we actually did it. We were talking about it. But, so there's, there's those sorts of relationships in a way. But you know you want to do a film with somebody and it sort of evolves, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, you guys have got another one that you're kind of working on, haven't you? Yeah, I'm doing a film for French TV, for Arte, called Brexecuted, which is a, uh, a comedy, a bit like Who I Am and What I Want, uh, the film I did with David Shrigley. It's like a farce, really, about um, the people have interviewed the day after the vote. Um, they're explaining why they voted for Brexit. So it's incredibly silly. And I'm doing it for French TV. I mean, it's, uh, it's quite catastrophic, the whole thing. But it's, it's very, very silly. I, mean, I think I've got to make it silly, because if I don't, it'll be too painful for the, the British people to watch. Because <laughs> you know I mean? yeah. we're all sick to death of the Brexit, and it's a mess. On either side, if you're in or out, I mean, it's split the country, isn't it? Yeah. It's totally split. It was fine before, <laughs> and now it's totally split it. Yeah. So that's the, the sad thing, really, isn't it? So I think there's elements of that in the new film, the fact that England's at odds with itself, really. As well as um, John is dead, here at Encounters um, Festival, you've actually just finished on um, the retrospective of your work. What's it like? seeing all those pieces and all those varied pieces as you've mentioned several times here back to back yeah. how's that perspective how are you feeling about that about well it was quite odd actually sat in there watched it and it was really quite odd I mean a lot of the films are meant to be watched by themselves because they're, they're quite intense a lot of my films fast paced you know uh, high octane because yeah. I always think it's like a feature film, it's like a pint of lager, isn't it? But a short film's like a shot of whiskey, you know what I mean? <laughs> That's it's, brilliant. It's, it's so intense. Because you're always trying to, like, stand out in a way with a short film. So short films are more intense. Because you've got to do more in less time. Yeah. yeah, so it was really odd seeing them all back to back. But I did enjoy it. But, you know, once again, you, you tend to think about, like, 
what people you knew at the time. It, it takes yeah. you back a bit, you know what I mean? Yeah. Then other films surprise you. Like we showed one on 35mm, which is Silence is Golden. I did that in 2006. And, and seeing it on 35mm, and, you know, it looked great. But sometimes you see them and you go, wow, you know, I'm amazed by that. It wasn't quite the way I remembered it. Or I don't know, it's it. But you can watch your films one day and think one thing and then watch them again and they'll be different. I don't normally watch my films, but I sat in there just to watch them all, but it was, uh, it was like my life flashing before me, really. <laughs> but it's weird, you don't really want to look backwards. Yeah. You know, you want to be thinking about what you're going to do next, really, do you know what I mean? Is that uh, not watching your films? Is that because, you know, you hear about filmmakers saying they can just see the flaws, they can see the compromises. Is that why you don't look back or...? Um, I don't know really. I mean, sometimes you see them, but it just depends on hindsight. You have a different quality about them. Obviously, the flaws bug you. There's always things that bug you. you go, oh, God. But I don't let that consume me really. I just figure it, any film's like a snapshot of time, you know. Yeah. It's how you were feeling on the day or the time or that year. They're like uh, home photos in a way. Snapshots of time, aren't they? Yeah. Films. When you look back on them, they're just what they are. It's hard to judge how I feel about them in a way, do you know what I mean? Yeah. But the weird thing with films, particularly with animation, hybrid films, is I remember that somebody said to Humphrey Littleton, the jazz musician, somebody said to him once, oh, well, you know, you like jazz, that's old-fashioned. And he was getting upset about it. And somebody said to him, he said, well, the thing is, is that when you've not heard music before, it's new. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's that thing, that's the thing with the films, is in a way... Sometimes you might have made it 10 years ago, but somebody sees it for the first time. You know, it's like it was made yesterday, and I think that's a fascinating thing with films, how timeless they are in a way. Our movie stars never die. And films interesting me now. I'm getting older now, but I see the films are just in their own time zone from a different time. It's quite weird. Yeah. But quite cool, really. You know, you know I think that's the beautiful thing about film. As an artist, it feels very much like you've never had to and it's a yeah, you know, it's a terrible rubbish term but you've never had to kind of sell out you've always been able to be who you are and express yourself yeah yeah, yeah. and i'm curious for somebody who's starting off now if you have any advice to them as to being able to stay the course of what it is that makes them um, i always wanted to sell out but nobody would have me <laughs> i kept trying to sell out and then they see my films and go bloody hell no not him <laughs> so that's a funny thing isn't it really selling that i don't know it's uh, I think it's what you do to the audience. If you want to make them laugh or cry, or that's what's important. Yeah. Even if it's commercial or or not, you know. I mean, thinking about what you want the audience to feel is always important, isn't it? Yeah. And getting a direct reaction off them. It's like remember Mel Brooks talked about comedy, and he said that you know if you're going to walk up to a bell, ring it. And I think that's very true of comedy. You know, you just got to go for it. You know what I mean? And I think with the films, it, it, it's the same again. Just be bold. You've got to be bold and not be scared. I know you've got to think about the market. The trouble is it's also market driven now, so that dictates a lot of the thinking, but especially with short films, you've got to be bold and be different because ultimately that's you know, going to make you stand out. You see, I went to art college, so I was always told to be different. It's part of my remit. <laughs> but I think, I think being bold, I think always being bold is good. I mean, truthful and having integrity. If you, if you don't believe in something, don't do it. You know what I mean? Unless you get paid loads of money. <laughs> and then it's worth it. You get paid it, loads of money. Well, it's like a sliding scale and no creativity and money, you know what I mean? If you're getting paid next to no money, it's got to be really super creative, isn't it? Yeah. That's the thing, just integrity and purity and be bold. 
don't be scared. I don't let anybody tell you what to do. Don't believe in the mythology of film. I always felt like when I got really successful and I did Silence is Golden and stuff like that around that period, I started to believe in it all and believe oh, I'm going to do X, Y, Z. I think in a way you're always best if you could just stay on your own body clock and just think about what you want to do and try to make it happen. Yeah. You know I mean? Especially now because everything is so market driven. If you chase the market, like nothing will happen, potentially. You're just chasing your tail yeah. and becoming more and more tepid in a way. So, if, you know, in all sorts of way, you're best to just be bold and, you know, be, be different. Your recent project term, Yours Faithfully, Edna Welcome. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because there's the film element which is available on Vimeo, on VOD. Yeah, yeah, moment, yeah, yeah, yeah. But there was a larger project around that as yeah, well. Yeah, it was. So. It all started off from a tweet. I was complaining about something. It was. I think a security guard gave me our time in the States we saw how the Tesco's it all yet and I sort of uh, and I started tweeting about it but when I start complaining on Twitter I can be quite objective about what I'm saying and I look at it and think God I sound like a real old fart do you know what I mean yeah. it's fucking middle aged tosser you know what I mean <laughs> like something I sort of um, you and yours on Radio 4 you know they all complain about yeah. consumer products and all this and I think fucking I don't want to be like that do you know what I mean so then I have a, a thing with Twitter where I try not to complain on it because no matter what happens to me it's awful to read but then at this one occasion I got guilty about it and I said there's only one person who's good at complaining and that's Ed Noel and I, this is Joe Orton's uh, pseudonym you know that he used to write prank letters as this old woman called Ed Noel so I started thinking about this and I wrote this tweet and then the Joe Orton archive got in touch with me and they said, why don't we do a project? And then because I've done a lot of comedy, I've got a lot of comedy writers to write new letters, new Ed Noelthorpe letters. We tied it into the 50th anniversary of his death. We went to an old theatre where he used to perform as a teenager because he went to RADA. Francis Barber read the letters and uh, we showed the film. And it was a really special evening. And Leonie Orton, his sister, she read from her memoirs. And it was great. And then the devices we got, we got amazing devices. We got... Uh, People like uh, David Quantic, who writes Veep and uh, The Thick of It, and Brass Eye. And, uh, we got uh, Jesse Armstrong, who does Peep Show. Phil Bowker did one, who did Phone Shop. Kaz Moran, who does Raised by Wolves. It was just loads of great writers, but we had a real coup because we got uh, Alec Baldwin, and he did one because he was in uh, Loot in Broadway. So he did one, and uh, it was such a great project. And I think what I got really excited about was that thing where it was a great live project because normally I make a film and then a film's like a recording so you do it and you show it and it's all ready sourced isn't it yeah. you know it's all there you can fiddle with it and make it work and it's there but with, uh, with this it was great fun because it was all live so we all read the letters for the first time to the audience got their laughs and it was really nice it's really really cool thing and I was really proud of it because I was always so into Joe Orton and his sister said to me, Leonie she said, oh Joe would have liked the film and what he did, and I was really touched by that, you know, because uh, he was a giant wasn't he, Joe Orton he, he, his plays yeah. against Eternal Mr Sloan and Loot and What the Butler saw, he's like an anarchist as well wasn't he, he was totally, yeah he's unbelievable he's great, if you can do that sometimes if you can meet your heroes that's another thing, isn't it? That's one thing with making films, if you've got no money, is if you hang in there and keep making the films, one day you'll probably meet your heroes. Yeah. I think that has been another thing that's really special 
when I look back at all the years I've done stuff some of the interactions I've had with people and people I've met and, and it's amazing to think I was sitting in my little house in Liverpool as a kid watching the TV and seeing people on TV like Alison Steadman who was in the uh, Edna Weltorp film and then there I am with her all those years later I never would have imagined when I as a kid I never thought I'd ever make a film or never thought I'd hang out with people like that or meet them it's really cool isn't it no, makes, it, makes it all worthwhile you know I've just realised that if I don't ask this question Rob's going to absolutely murder me or oh, is it a killer it's, question no it's not even it's not even that it's like is there even the smallest possibility that we might one day see a one off return to the world's staring <laughs> championships <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> but the thing is, we did Big Train, and what happened was, we did that show for this one season, then everybody went off and did the different things. Like Simon Pegg went on and did Space, and all the different actors went on and did different things. And because there was a three-year gap between season one and Big Train, so when season two came, they were all too busy to do it. Everybody dissipated in a way. And so I don't know really. Graham went on and did Black Books, then he did the IT Crowd. Then Arthur Matthews obviously did The Toast of London and uh, other shows. Arthur, he wanted to do like a compilation of a DVD that you bought. That minimal animation, but the commentary goes on for an hour. <laughs> Just bought it and it's like one big long thing. Which I think is really funny. That'd be brilliant. But people get so into this down. If you look at the comments online and people start talking about old matches and talk about the rules and it, it really captivated people I show. I'm really proud of it, you know, it's so silly. It's know? fantastic. I mean, I remember watching it at the time when I was watching you know, Big Train and you'd go and talk to your friends about, oh, did you see that one? It was amazing. Yeah, people make their own moms and yeah, it'd be nice to revisit it, wouldn't it, watching that. Maybe I should see if they want to do another one. But Barry Davis is still alive, isn't he? He's getting pretty old now, you know, the commentators yeah. and Phil Cornwall. But Barry, Barry must be 85 now, isn't he? He used to do Match of the Day, but now he does the, uh, the Olympics now. I mean, he doesn't do a lot now, but he loved it. Uh, Barry Davis had, like, a blazer on with a monogram on his, on his breast. And, uh, and, he, uh, and he was just fantastic. We did loads of ad-libs. We had a bit where there's a naked man runs onto the pitch. I remember we just showed it to Barry and Phil and said, just react to this. And it was so funny what Barry was coming out with. I mean, the thing is, he's a good actor, Barry Davis, who does the sports commentary, because I suppose you have to make something out of nothing sometimes. Yeah. That's part of what the stare out's all about, isn't it? It is like the most boring sport <laughs> I've ever known to man. And yet so gripping. So they have to make something out of it, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, I've got a soft spot for that. It'd be good wouldn't it, to see the, the Masters return again to the sports. I think that's a definite room I'm going to start telling everybody. Chris, thank you so much for that's spending right. so much time with me. It's been, it's good. It's been great. a pleasure. All right, thanks. Thanks for listening. And may I suggest that now's the perfect time to subscribe to the podcast in your app of choice. As this week, Team Dearden is heading off for our annual fortnight at the London Film Festival, which will bring with it a host of interviews here and of course on directorsnotes.com, where you can currently read James's preview of what we're looking forward to seeing and talking about at this year's festival. Speak to you soon.